Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We are a part of that collection of two white men <laughs> doing podcasts. We're two queer white men. How does that differentiate us at all? Or does I'm, it? Totally helps with the topic. We're talking, talking about, about musicals. And we're talking about musical theater. <laughs> I'm Peter. And I'm Nathan. And yes, musical theater has gospel. And dancing boys. And fancy hats. So join us for the gospel of musical theater wherever you get your podcasts. ES Audio. Hello, this is the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm Nancy Durrant, the Standards Culture Editor. And I'm Nick Clark, Deputy Culture Editor. Coming up, we review Further Than the Furthest Thing, which is now on at the Young Vic. I'll be speaking to Danny Mays and Marisha Wallace, who are currently starring in Guys and Dolls at the Bridge Theatre. When Marisha's up there uh, doing Take Back Your Mink, I'm like, I sidle up to an audience member and go, isn't she something? Like, take a look at this. We've got a great bit with the handkerchief where I threaten, like, they scream. This and... woman screams. <laughs> on the, the press night. I let out of my seat. I was like, what's going on here. Plus, we'll be reviewing Marjorie Prime at the Menier Chocolate Factory starring Anne Reid. Oh, did you see that serious playwright David Hare has started a new column uh, obviously in The Spectator um, with a rant about how much he hates musicals. I did see that. Shock horror. David Hare last in the press slagging off theatre for being too pious last year <laughs> and several years ago for being too European. I think the problem is it's just not David Hare enough at not the moment. Not David Hare enough. There's not enough David Hare in the West. So he called them, I like this, the Leylandii of theatre. I don't know what Leylandii is. Leylandii is, I believe, a an invasive plant. Right. And he accused them of strangling everything in their path and said it was a crushing defeat to see Wyndham's theatre without a straight play, which is quite funny from a straight play, right? Well, and also, can you just remind me what it's replacing? It's replacing The Life of Pi, which was a straight play. I mean, it had a tiger in it, but it was a straight play. <laughs> and that was in rep a little bit with um, the Wagatha Christie play. Yeah, as exactly. far as I'm aware, Rooney not Hardy. much music in that. Not any music at all. But he said something quite funny, didn't he, about like why it might be. Yes, there was one line he said, um, are dramatists not writing enough good plays? <laughs> don't know, dramatist David Hare, you tell me. <laughs> Though it did it did lead me, something um, Andrew Lloyd Webber said in the Times um, about it, led me to investigate David Hare's own contribution to musical theatre, <laughs> which I didn't even know existed. A, a 1987 floperama about <laughs> gender reassignment surgery wow. called wow. The Knife, which okay. would probably get him cancelled now if it hadn't been conveniently cancelled a long time ago. By the fact no one turned up to see it? Uh, pretty much, I think, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Well, if David's worried, there are a few shows in the West End now One that he two. can see if he likes. There's um, Streetcar Named Desire coming up. Straight play. There's Private Lives. Very much a straight play. Um, I'm sure I saw To Kill a Mockingbird this week in the West End. Yes, I think you did. There's also uh, Four Black Boys coming up at the yeah. Apollo, which is a straight play. Very much so. Oh, Sheridan Smith was in the definition of a straight play quite recently. In oh, Sheridan yeah, Valentine. exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, it's not, I don't think it's quite, I don't think theatre has been quite throttled yet. No. Anyway, first up, we've got Further Than the Furthest Thing at the Young Vic. 
Yes, which we saw uh, yesterday. Uh, we took a little class trip together for the matinee. And afterwards, we were left scratching our heads and wondering if we had seen the same show as the rest of the reviewers. I am struggling to work out why this has been revived, mm. to be honest with you. Oh, God, I was bored, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like it at all. To give a quick synopsis of the show, Francis, the returning nephew to Mill and her husband, Bill brings back a industrialist from South Africa and we get the feeling from the off that into this enclosed island idyll the outside world is about to break it open with devastating consequences yeah exactly i mean essentially it's a it's a story about how the outside world enacts upon this community has enacted upon it before and will enact on it in the future that's yeah. that's essentially yeah. the sort of it's set on an island. Yeah, the, based on Tristan da Cunha, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. In the sort of early 60s. And it's also, it's sort of based on a true story about mm. the, the eruption of a volcano and the islanders have to be evacuated. To um, England, in fact. And then we sort of find out what happens to them there. And I think the playwright Zinni Harris has taken that on a little bit. I did like their description of England as pudding the queen football pudding. Like, <laughs> yeah, bang to yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> perfectly accurate. Yeah. So... Coming into the um, into the Young Vic's uh, main space, there's a really interesting design. It's in the round. Yep. I love an in the round production. Yeah, um, it's sort of amphitheatery in a way. It, it is, gives yeah. that idea. You go in, you get that sort of island sense. It's open. The design is is quite sparse, but it sort of works from the beginning. The lighting and the video design is is rather immersive. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. Beautiful, beautiful video design of um, moving waves, and it, it just just really, really kind of stunning. Actually, I thought, and it pulls you in, and and. Sadly, from there, I, I found myself drifting straight out again. Very <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <Pretty> good. <laughs> I mean, I just, maybe it would be better if the pace was picked up somehow. I don't yeah. know, maybe we saw a duff like, day. It was a it was a matinee and, and they were doing two shows. Perhaps they were holding back their energy, but it's so turgid mm. and inert. It feels almost perverse. Mm. I found with the setting, the sort of huge spaces, there was a, a sort of lack of energy in between. There, yeah. there wasn't a huge amount of chemistry between the characters no, as well. No, there really wasn't, actually. And there was a moment, there's like two people who are sort of supposed to be in love but can't quite manage it. And there's two people who are married but, you know, don't seem to have any kind of, they seem almost like best friends. And there's a point at which somebody later sort of confesses that he loves kind of one of the other characters and you're like what <laughs> didn't see that <laughs> did not get that at all yeah and and because the action sort of didn't really get moving and right until the end of the first act mm. when it, it sort of goes the other way and becomes hugely dramatic very quickly mm. It just left me very much on the outside of this play. It picks up a little bit in the, in the second act when they're in a f all the islanders have been moved and working in the factory where they're obviously at odds with their situation. But even then, the drama builds. I found myself being left totally cold by this. I know. It's funny, isn't it? There are a number of what ought to be really quite shocking revelations. None of them or very few of them are quite unpredictable enough to be genuinely shocking mm. i think and there is one there is one moment there was one moment when i felt truly engaged which was when jenna russell's character um mm. and it, you know and it's it's not a bad cast they're, mm. they're doing their best yeah. um, but she is by far the best thing in it she holds it together definitely um her character is telling a story about an event that occurred a long time ago during the war 
at that moment, I kind of felt I felt moved and I felt totally in it, except for the fact that I was noticing that I was in it for the first time mm. in the entire show. And that was in the second half. And it, it just doesn't say a lot for the rest of it. Also, I think, should we talk a little bit about the accents, which is kind of distracting? Yes. The play's written in this pidgin English, and it's about this enclosed island community. What I found very distracting is that the four main characters from that community all spoke the same pidgin, but with different accents. There's an Irish accent in there, there's Scottish, mm. a Mancunian accent, I think, and, and maybe a West Country. And... I, I wondered what, why. <laughs> I, I sort of wondered whether actually that wasn't intentional. I was wondering whether it was that it's meant to be something like a kind of, you know, like a Newfoundland or something, which is an accent which is developed independently from a much older right. time because it's so isolated. Mm. So it's really weird and it's got inflections from visitors and also like, I don't know, just from people coming in who've stayed and then it's it's developed into this its own thing. But I feel like you, you wonder whether they all started out trying to do that one very particular, very mixed up accent. And then because they're having to act as well mm. and remember all their lines, each of them is sort of slipping into the thing that it reminds them most of. So Irish or Scottish or whatever it is. They weren't so different all the time that it felt fully intentional to me. So oh, really? either of those two options, though, are not good because yeah. either they're all not quite getting it, which is distracting, or they've all got different accents for a, a reason choice. that isn't obvious, which I, is also distracting. So either way, it just doesn't work. I thought they must have made a choice, and I just didn't get why that choice was made. On the, the day that we saw it, don't you think the rest of the audience was struggling as well? <laughs> Definitely. I mean, they were... <laughs> It was, this felt sort of kind of microaggression-y. It wasn't those big sort of, you know, people doing terrible things, having a picnic and, you know, singing along or anything. But just tiny little things throughout that show that they weren't quite engaged, like getting up in the middle of the first act and very noisily leaving. Oh, yeah, now that is really, I mean, you know, let's not gatekeep, but bloody hell. If, yeah. you've commi- if, you've commi- if the lights have gone down and people are talking on the stage, you are committed until the interval to stay. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just, it's not fair on the actors. Mm. That's the main thing. It's really bad. And Yeah. And again, not wanting to police audience members at all because people who engage with what's going on in front of yeah. them, they can engage in any way as loud or quiet as they yeah, like. And absolutely. I think that's up to individual people. But the woman next to us who was scrolling through her messages for a good five, five oh, ten yeah, minutes. Oh, yeah, that was quite annoying. was a bit yeah. annoying. It's the second time it's happened to me in a week. Yeah, where someone was just going through their Instagram five minutes into the second act. Yeah, and the woman digging out a sandwich from the bag <laughs> on the front row. That was quite funny. Okay, um, I, but I think my favourite, one person who was clearly sitting in the gallery accidentally kicked over a pint, yeah. <laughs> which went straight onto the audience below. Yeah, onto someone's head. That was <laughs> which, a real That was kerfuffle. really unfortunate. So ultimately, yeah, we did not love this, <laughs> unfortunately. Was, I, you know, with a heavy heart, I say I it just proved a little bit of a slog. And it's having read the reviews, I'm, I'm disappointed because there's clearly another show in there that I, I would know. have loved to have seen. Absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, that, that was not the one that we saw on the day. Right, let's go to a quick ad break. Coming up, I'll be joined by Danny Mays and Marisha Wallace, stars of Guys and Dolls. In the meantime, why not hit that like button and rate? 
That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. We are a part of that collection of two white men doing podcasts. We're two queer white men. Does that differentiate us at all? Does it? It totally helps with the topic. We're talking, talking about, about musicals. Yeah, we're talking about musical theater. <laughs> I'm Peter. And I'm Nathan. And yes, musical theater has gospel. And dancing boys. And fancy hats. So join us for the Gospel of Musical Theater wherever you get your podcasts. I am delighted to welcome to the Evening Standard Theatre podcast two stars of the five-star new revival of Guys and Dolls at the Bridge Theatre, Marisha Wallace and Danny Mays. Welcome. Uh, Thank you for having us on. Danny, I wonder if you could just introduce us to the world of... Guys and Dolls. Guys and Dolls is all based on the short stories of the brilliant Damon Runyon. And it's uh, to me, it's a celebration of New York. It's set in the 50s and it tells a story of two very contrasting worlds. You've got the world of the gamblers. I play Nathan Detroit, who's the leader of the most famous crap game in the city. And uh, aside from that, you've got the storyline of the Salvation Army, which was involved with uh, Sarah Brown's character, and it's a collision of those two worlds. But it's a celebration of New York. It's a celebration of love and connection. And um, it's just the most joyous thing to be part of. The gamblers, the hustlers, the saviors of souls. Everyone just sort of comes together in this amazing... (laughs) Marisha, you play um, Miss Adelaide. Can you tell us a little bit more about her and and her relationship with Nathan? Well, Miss Adelaide is such an iconic character of musical theater. Um, I remember studying Miss Adelaide when I went to university. And um, it was just a role that I never thought that I would be allowed to play, let alone be able to get my hands on it. And I've always wanted to get my hands on things that people have done before because I like to rip them apart Mm. and then find (laughs) new layers inside of them. Um, But Adelaide, at the heart of their relationship, the first thing I looked at was like, why would she be with a man for 14 years who won't marry her? And I was like, the only reason why she would do this is because she loves him. And if we can get to that bit of the story, find the love between these two characters and really make that real, then we're going to find something brand new to bring to the story. And I think that's what You've we also found. got Danny Mays playing Nathan. I also have Danny Mays, so you it was really hard for me to not, <laughs> there to is not that. fall in love with you. <laughs> but she's also like this burlesque star, so mm. there's two sides to her that I feel like we've never seen where she's like this amazing performer, but then backstage, which we know as with other stars, their personal life is mess and they're you know they're vulnerable and they're trying to figure themselves out and they have this on stage persona and off stage persona so I think together with Nathan they're just like a dynamite you know couple that has so many levels and nuances that you can play with and I think we've really excavated that had you sort of thrown out a lot of the sort of former performances in trying to find your Miss Adelaide yeah I looked at um, a lot of the other performances I mean and I knew that I was going to be different anyway first off I'm a woman of color I'm curvy like I come from 
from a recording background. I have kind of a gospel soul voice as well. So I knew what I would bring to it would always be different anyway. But then I also was like, what if we threw out all the crazy accents? What if we didn't play those accents? We didn't play the cartoon that we just found a real woman. Like I love to make my characters really relatable because women are so complex and so cool that it's so nice to see a four-dimensional woman on stage, which I think is Absolutely. great. Absolutely. It brings yeah. a whole new level to me. Nathan's <laughs> complex too. <laughs> well, men, men have many layers too. <laughs> I bet they do. <laughs> I mean, occasionally Nathan seems quite quite simple in his uh, desires and urges, but Danny, you in this amazing uh, wide-ranging career, a part of it you were known for sort of cheeky chappies, and Nathan yeah. does seem the archetypal cheeky chappy. But again, yeah. there is a sort of a huge depth to him as well, what you bring. And I wondered how you approach the character. Uh, pretty much in the same vein as Marisha, you kind of look at past actors that have taken on it mm. in the role. It's an iconic role. Bob Hoskins played it in the 80s at the National, Nathan Lane on Broadway. And so you kind of want to test yourself mm. against those performances. But, you know, I've kind of I've brought my acting chops to it I, I think with Nathan I wanted to he is your kind of archetypal lovable rogue mm. he is your cheeky chappy I've played lots of those mm -hmm. types of characters so in many respects I'm tailor made for that but this you know it's a musical I haven't attempted anything like this in 25 years it's a Bronx accent uh, so I wanted to push the comedy to the absolute hilt but then you're right, there are layers and nuance and pathos that we've found in it. What are the real barnstorming numbers for you guys that you really just can't wait to, to do every night? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, you know, when I first went into this production, I was like, oh, The Lament, yeah. that is the one. Yeah. And The Lament is great. But then we got a hold of Take Back Your Mink, and I was like, <laughs> Miss LA needs to be a star. Like, I wanted her to be like the Beyonce of the 1950s. Like, this is what I wanted. Nice. I was yeah. like, Beyonce, Meg the Stallion. In, but we're going to bring that to like Adelaide. And so we took Take Back Your Meat. We revamped the whole beginning. We went for more like of a Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday, but like with a Dita Von Teese burlesque flair to it. And we just revamped that whole thing. By the time you get to the end, I'm in a, like a Beyonce sparkly mirror. An amazing strip. costume. Like reveal, reveal, reveal. I was like, oh, we need a hair reveal for Broadway. Like, like we got to keep adding more reveals. Um, but yeah, that's one of my favorite numbers to do because I get to dance and sing and do everything, you know, all of my tricks in my bag. I love and it. And Danny, you're part of one of the, my favorite all-time tunes, Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat. I mean, what is it like um, to be part of that number? Well, I mean, you know, it's brilliantly led by Cedric Neal, who who's an absolute superstar and his voice is from heaven, incredible. I mean, I have to say the first time uh, we performed Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat in front of an audience, it was just an open dress. There was 150 people. Halfway through, I, was, I got very emotional because I can't tell you how hard we worked on it in rehearsals. You know, the choreography is so intricately put together from Arlene Phillips. And, you know, all of a sudden, the whole thing just took flight. And you, you as a performer, you go, this is what all these rehearsals are about. Yeah. This is why we do it. You know, in the rehearsals, we, by the end, we were craving the audience because a lot <laughs> of the stuff we have to do with the audience, like the lament, which is so special now because I wanted to feel like I'm reading this book and I'm telling this story to my 
friend. I'm like, girl, this man's getting on my nerves. I think he's giving me a cold. He's making me sick. Help me. You know, so, like, I get to talk to the audience about it. And when we first had the audience, and they're literally right there. They're looking up at you and acting with you. They turn into actors. It's so weird. They're, like, a part of it. Their eyes. Some people are afraid to give in, and then you see them give in. And also, a lot of them are, like, to hear your voice that close, because <laughs> I have a huge yeah. voice. It's so exciting for them. It just feels it like it proves the power of theater. Really. Oh, my goodness. Uh, the night, so that was like one of the first couple of previews. There was uh, four beautiful black girls who were st- standing there, and they were, like, for the limit, at my feet. And I got to sing one of the lines to them. And their faces, like, look, I'll cry, like, talking about it. But just to be represented on stage, I think that meant a lot to them to see someone who looks like them on stage because I wish I had had that when I was growing up that like to see a, a beautiful black woman like just glorified and all of you know on stage and is like the the object of desire and not the butt of a joke or you know what I mean like it just felt really amazing and you don't get that connection with the audience when they're like you know so far away but to have them at my feet and they're just like you're beautiful we love you you can just <laughs> see it in their eyes that they were like oh my god I could do something like this or I, even if they don't want to go in a theater just to know that they could do something amazing with themselves I think it was just it was just a beautiful moment and I, then you got other people looking at my performance <laughs> going god that looks like hard work <laughs> I don't want to be an actor <laughs> for me personally with the audience I'm, I'm actually becoming even more bold in kind of interacting with them you know like I'm really chatting to them they're like when when Marisha's up there uh, doing Take Back Your Mink I'm like I sidle up to an audience member and go isn't she something like take a look at this and I'm really pushing my uh, way through the audience barging them out the way to get on stage we've got a great bit with the handkerchief where I threaten like they scream this and, woman screaming <laughs> on the, the press hand- night a snotty handkerchief she sneezes in my face and then, I was like I even left out of my seat I was like what's going on here yeah in my own shows when I'm doing Marisha Wallace shows I get really intimate with the audience I do these bits where like I find a man with bald head and he has like a little wisp of hair I like spin it around and like <laughs> sit on people's laps it's like my thing so I was like LA she's gonna do that too and so I get to do that in the audience and people just go crazy and it's also cool to see an audience member be put on the spot as a stage yeah. so everyone is a star in the show like it's but really like cool. a special shout out to Bunny Christie our designer yes. she's along with our visionary director Nick Heitner yes. them together have really kind of just brought this whole thing to life and I think the way in which we've stayed it is this it's an added extra element that sets this particular production of guys and dolls apart what are you bringing each other you know established musical star established stage star what what can you bring each other in this i think we're helping each other i it's think we complement each other Absolutely. really well don't we i think so like because you're you so strong yes. <laughs> <laughs> no i think so too because like where anytime we have any weaknesses the other person is strong and i think that is only building us more every day like i think you're such a strong actor mm. Like, I feel like it stepped my game up acting-wise. And just us as comedians, I think we were so on par as comedians that we we can challenge each other and we, yeah. and we listen to each other and we take risks. And your voice is great. Like, but you have gotten so strong as a singer You're only well. ever as good as the actor in front of you. Yeah. And I'm absolutely blessed to be working with Marisha. She's an absolute superstar. 
And I mean, I, I mean, I was blown away by the talent from the whole company when I got into the rehearsal room. Day one, when we sat down, we read it and we did the sing along. I was like, this has the potential to be something absolutely extraordinary. And um, the reviews have been fantastic. The response has been wild. And I, I just couldn't be happier. Now, just to end, I've been having an argument with uh, the Evening Standard theatre critic, uh, <laughs> Nick Curtis, about their favourite, our favourite musicals, the best of all time. For me, this is it. This is number one. He's edging towards West Side Story. Marisha, can I ask you, what is your favourite all-time musical? Uh, my all-time favourite has to be Dreamgirls. Okay. I mean, that is the best written music for, I, I just think, there's no songs. When I perform it, I'm telling you, anywhere in the world, on any stage, always a standing ovation. So if you can create music that does that, for 40, 50 years, I, I think Dreamgirls is amazing. And, and Daddy, I know you haven't been in it alone, but did you watch them? Is there, is there one that sort of stood out for you? I always liked Jesus Christ Superstar. Okay. That was That's something that really um, connected with me. Mm. I think the songs in that are incredible. And so now, now that you've dipped Not your toe into... Not that I'm going to play Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to play Judas now. Yeah. <laughs> you got a lot of high notes in there. I ain't got a voice for that. <laughs> you've yeah. dipped your toe into the... Now is this whole of musical No, but I mean, you up. know, my agent's saying to me, Danny, you've done this. The whole sort of musical mm. world has sort of opened up to you somewhat. So... And a couple of the cast members, like, what are you going to play next? You know, like, Arthur Doolittle or whatever it is, I don't know. So, What are we doing next? Yeah, what are we going to do next? Yeah, let's just get through this run first. Let's just actually get through this two-show day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it really is an extraordinary show. Thank you both for joining us on the Evening Standard Theatre podcast. It's been such a pleasure. And uh, best of luck with the rest of the run. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you. Coming up. Nick Curtis joins us to review Marjorie Prime at the Menier Chocolate Factory, starring Anne Reed. We are a part of that collection of two white men <laughs> doing podcasts. We're two queer white men. Does that differentiate us at all? Does I, it? I totally helps with the topic. We're talking, talking about, about musicals. Yeah, we're talking about musical theatre. <laughs> I'm Peter. And I'm Nathan. And yes, musical theater has gospel. And dancing boys. And fancy hats. So join us for the gospel of musical theater wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Evening Standard Theater podcast. So today we were going to talk about Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead, which is meant to be on at the Barbican at the moment. But it was called off last minute. Nancy, you you were there. What happened? Yeah, I was on press night on Monday night and we were actually in our seats. We'd been in our seats for, by the time it happened, about 15 to 20 minutes. And they called off the show because the leading lady, Catherine Hunter, had been taken ill, which meant that those of us who'd been moaning about the fact that it was a three-hour show that started at 7.45, we all shut up pretty quickly, actually. So, you know, we because we're, we're hoping that she'll be okay. So, yes, from all of us here at the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast, get well soon, Catherine Hunter. In its place, Nick Curtis, who is tramping up the mountains in Scotland this week, had a chat with me about the Menier Chocolate Factory's new show, Marjorie Prime. I haven't seen this, but Nick has. So, Nick, tell me about it. It's a 2014 play by Jordan Harrison, American playwright and screenwriter who uh, was a writer and producer for three seasons on Orange is the New Black as well. Um, but this is a play about death, illness and artificial intelligence. Sounds um, cheery. <laughs> it is. It's a laugh a minute stuff. It's not actually laugh a minute stuff. It's actually quite wordy, quite static and talky. It's not what I'd call uh, 
an exciting play in a dramatic sense, but the ideas inside it are are really quite stimulating and intriguing. It seems to have a pretty stellar cast. It's a pretty stellar cast. You've got Anne Reid, who is the star of Last Tango in Halifax, Dinner Ladies, Sanderton, absolutely wonderful actress, yeah. um, who is now 87 years old. And how is she? She's uh, she's great. She she plays the, the character Marjorie Prime, who is, when we first meet her, an ageing woman with dementia, mm who is companioned by an artificial intelligence who represents a younger version of her dead husband. And the idea is that he becomes a more vivid personality the more that she tells him about himself and about their life together. And he buttresses up her memory and her sense of herself and keeps her dementia at bay. Feels sort of black mirror-y. Little, it is quite black mirror-y. It's, it's quite unusual. I've banged on, on about this in the podcast before. It's quite unusual for theatre to go futuristic. Mm. And it's quite unusual for theatre to not be talking about the present or the past and not just feature people arguing about things in rooms. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, the thing I loved about this was it, it has got a really expansive concept. It's got really big ideas behind it. And it is futuristic, not in a killer robots, lasers and spaceships way, but in a where are we going? As a, Where is humanity going? And where is particularly AI going to take us, which is obviously a very current thing at the moment. And I think a very pressing concern for uh, both on a sort of visceral level for the average person on the street and for philosophers and scientists on a much more sort of elevated level about what the, what the pitfalls of AI might be. The play also stars the great Nancy Carroll. Um, yep. where, does she, where does her character come in? Yep, she's a, a former winner of the Evening Standard and Natasha Richardson Award for Best Actress, uh, once described as the, the best actress you've never heard of, Nancy mm. Carroll. Um, she plays Marjorie's daughter in this, and where the AI is a sort of placid, receptive, reactive presence and emotionless. She is a bundle of repressed anger, uh, fury and sorrow because basically she has lots of unresolved tensions with her mother and unresolved tensions with her dead father and there are lots and lots of things in the family's past that need addressing that can't now be addressed because the mother, while retaining a certain element of sort of spikiness and beadiness and difficulty is also forgetting things. So so these these things can't be properly unpacked and dealt with. It's a lovely, subtle performance of, of weariness from Nancy Carroll. The night I saw it, she'd gone back into the show after three days off with um, viral laryngitis. She literally had been un- mm-hmm. unable to perform. And I wouldn't have known that if they hadn't mm-hmm. announced it at the beginning of the show. She was, uh, she was absolutely extraordinary. There's great acting and there's great ideas in this. I don't think it's a great play. Um, I personally enjoyed it because I am a sci-fi nerd. I've also... Um, had some experience of a family member with dementia, so a lot of those scenes spoke to me on quite a, a sort of moving level. Mm. As I say, it's, it has a cracking cast. Um, yeah. Tony Jaya Wardener as well is in it as as Tess's husband, who brings a lot of warmth and compassion to the play that it really sort of needs, mm. because otherwise it would have quite a sort of spiky emotional template and would just have all these very dense, very challenging ideas in them. It's a four-hander, and the person we haven't mentioned is Richard Fleishman, who plays Walter, the husband. There is a problem, I think, with what we could call robot acting, in that it's almost impossible not to fit into a cliché either of talking like that, <laughs> or the, the more modern version of the sort of AI uh, humanoids who are sort of almost human but not quite. You know, they're, they're not, they, they don't really understand emotions, they're slightly expressionless. It's a pretty good performance from him in that he is emotionless and, <laughs> and rather affectless in his, in his speech. They're not very threatening, the AIs in this. I'm not giving that much away if I reveal that there is ultimately more than one. This play moves through three definite stages of a timeline, but they are still unnerving. You know, they're, they're not killer robots, as I say, but there's something 
strange and disconcerting about them. That's it for this week's episode of the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm Nancy Durrant. And I'm Nick Clark. We'll be back next Sunday. Make sure you hit rate, follow and leave us a review. You can find all our reviews and news online at standard.co.uk. We'll see you next week. Thank you.